Mouthing Off is a theater, arts, and culture podcast from Bad Mouth Theater Company in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Amanda Forstrom. I'm Kevin Couchman. And I'm Mari Sidner. Mouthing Off features compelling interviews and discussions with creators and artists from around the Twin Cities and beyond. Tune in for something different online where you get your podcasts at badmouthtc.com and on the air in St. Paul from Frogtown Radio 94.1 FM. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, we're back with another episode of Mouthing Off, a theater, arts, and culture podcast online at badmouthpc.com, but also, maybe more important, on old-timey radio, 94.1 FM, Frogtown Radio here in beautiful St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Kevin Couchman, and today I have one of my co-hosts, Mari, is in Seattle asking Twitter what she can do in Seattle. I hope she gets some good answers. Mari, hope you have a great time. Amanda Forstrom is here. Amanda, how are you? I'm doing great. And I'm happy to be back on the old timey radio, talking arts, theater, culture, music, and hearing more about our new guest. Yes. And if you go into the back catalog of mouthing off at badmouthtc.com. You can hear a lot more from our guest, Ian Hathaway, an actor living here in Minnesota. Ian, how are you? I'm I'm doing great. It's good to be back on the radio, actually. It's been a long time since I was on broadcast, um, apart from, you know, podcasts like we, we, we talked about. But um, yeah, it's good to be on the, uh, on the waves again, on the waves with Ian Hathaway. I think we got a title. Uh, when was the last time you were, you were on the radio, Ian? Oh man. Uh, there was a production in Madison that I was a part of for the, uh, the Madison Shakespeare company, um, quite a few years back. I want to say it was 2017, uh, maybe early 2018 that I did a, a little radio spot for, um, I mm-hmm. believe I read a sonnet as Christopher Walken, uh, I think in, in preparation for the production, <laughs> it was, we had a whole bunch of, uh, shenanigans happening, like read a sonnet with a character pulled out of a hat and an emotion suggested by the audience, that kind of thing. Uh, during the production, I think I read a sonnet as Kermit, the frog terrified, um, which was a delight. I got a fever. I need more of the bard. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. Shall I compare the to a summer's day? Yeah. Just it, like really absolute shenanigans. Um, really, really goofy stuff, but it was a lot of fun. Um, the, the man, the voice, the legend, Ian Hathaway, ladies and gentlemen, can you give us a little Kermit the Frog since we've heard <sighs> Christopher? Well, uh, this is uh, Kermit the Frog here. Uh, uh, have you seen Miss Piggy? I've been looking for her all day. I can't seem to find her anywhere. That is a very good, <laughs> very strong Kermit the Frog. Uh, oh, back my in, goodness. I think Kermit mm. was one of the first impressions that I learned to do. Uh, like many people who have tried their hand at voice acting, uh, of our generation, especially like Stitch was one of the first because he's a very easy voice to do. All you do is sort of squeeze your vocal folds together and you get Stitch's voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Gollum comes immediately after that. Andy Circus's take on Gollum because it's the exact same voice, just with more air put through it. Uh, you do the exact same technique as Stitch to make Gollum. Uh, and then you just add a little phlegm. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> 
which he, is not mm. that's not to take away from like Andy Serkis's performance, by the way, because doing that for an entire film, I can't imagine the destruction on your throat. It's so hard. Um, it's for like two lines easy for an entire film. Shockingly difficult. You have to do them both now. <laughs> There's no choice. Stitch. <laughs> All so, right. you know, Stitch, you, you, you know, like I said, you just kind of squeeze everything together and you get or Hannah means family. Family means no one that's left behind or forgotten. Hmm. And then nice. you can mm-hmm. do the exact same thing. Uh, so usually I started off with like, there's one little section that would come up behind like friends of mine and just like creep them out. Like, like you know, come up behind them and just or forgotten. Um, oh, wow. you had so a little now, bit of yeah. So now I'm thinking that I need all of uh, Lilo and Stitch remade as Gollum's voice, and you know somebody else, maybe Christopher Walken being Lilo or something. I don't know, but this is fantastic. If if it weren't for the fact that like I I mean I suppose parody is is protected speech, so there's there's that option. But now I'm imagining just uh, putting up a one man show of Lilo and Stitch. And every single character is just some wild uh, rip-off voiceover. Uh, that 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 you know maybe that's my next tour. That's <laughs> hey, yeah, we right. know a theater company mm, uh, that takes new play submissions at badmouthtc.com, and mm-hmm. uh, we're always looking for new material. And there's the Minnesota Fringe Festival, which is awesome. And Ian, I'm just saying. You know, that is a fringe idea just waiting to happen is, is like parody productions with Gollum and Christopher Walken and all these other things that that could be really there was a um, I think it was uh, John DiMaggio, the voice actor who said a bad impression makes an excellent character voice. Um, and he was talking about, uh, I don't remember what, who the impression was of, but he was talking about how he developed voices for like Bender and all these other like iconic animated mm. characters. And he was like, sometimes you just stumble into an impression of somebody and you find the perfect character voice by messing up your impersonation. Uh, and it just rolls on from there. Well, there's a whole slew of, uh, you know, people of our generation who have made millions off of this on YouTube. Uh, One that comes to mind, a friend of a friend is Miranda, uh, who did Miranda Sings. And uh, she would she came up with this character, I guess, in high school named Miranda. And she would just kind of monologue and riff in this voice. And it turned into her recording YouTube videos. And she's a musical theater actress. So then this character would sing. And now she's one of the, I think, the highest YouTube channels and uh, was invited to be in a show on Broadway and, and all of these things. And so it's fantastic. That's brilliant. That's, that's mm-hmm. fantastic. It's, it's, the, it's the strangest thing that so many of these ideas, like if you have the drive and you, and you keep with it long enough and you, you create that, that material, like you can really do some incredible things with just a, a microphone, a webcam, and the creative push to keep making material until you get gold. Um, I think I think a lot of us get uh, discouraged by initial failures, um, and those of us in the acting biz, it you know you have like everyone gets said no to ten thousand times for every yes we get, so it's 
there's that persistence that has to be there in order to actually push through something. But it's different when it's uh, a no coming internally. I think some people tell themselves no after they think they have a poor idea or something and if they stick with it. Um, that's it's amazing what uh, what you can accomplish. Well, David Lynch uh, recently, uh, I don't know when he said this, but it was going around on social media. And of, of course, the great David Lynch, the living American treasure uh, you know, one of the greatest all-time film directors uh, was saying, and it, this is rather extreme, but he's like, if you have a good idea and you're an artist and you don't have like a notebook and you aren't writing that idea down, you might decide to kill yourself <laughs> if you don't have the idea written down. He's that extreme and serious about it. And I, uh, and I, I don't doubt he's genuine. And I will say, if you are a creative and you don't have a notebook kind of sitting around like you owe it to yourself to have that like on your bed's bedside table in the bathroom wherever you need it wherever those ideas come if they come in the shower like get a waterproof notebook <laughs> i actually i always used to have scrap pieces of paper and notebooks all these different things that i would carry around with me i remember sitting in a pew at church once back when i was going to church with my family and there were little scraps of paper next to the hymnals. I have no idea what they were intended to be used for, um, but I used them to scribble down story ideas. At the time, I fancied myself a writer and was planning to do to be a, a fiction writer, um, a novelist specifically. And uh, although I have numerous drafts of various things kind of stowed away on hard drives and in hard copy notebooks, um, it, it never quite got off the ground. Um, partly, I think, probably because at, at the time I told myself no. Uh, I was never very good at mm. the, the the return draft, you know, going back over over your ideas. And uh, like that, that's the hard part of writing. Like you can throw ideas down on, on the page, but coming back to sift through the chaff and find those nuggets of brilliance inside all of the silly ideas that came onto the page just from top of mind. That's, that's the work that's hard work, but yeah, I, I always used to write story ideas down like that. And I had a dream recently and woke up and immediately took notes down in the notes app on my phone. And I went, I need to write this down because that dream was wild. And I want to figure out where it goes next. Do you care to share it or is it uh, too I, personal? No, it was not personal at all. It was bizarre. Uh, I would happily share it. Let me just open this up here. Um, yeah, very exciting. One, well, you find it. One thing I uh, say to writers is that well, obviously, this is a cliche, right? Writing is editing. But mm -hmm. the key, and let's say playwriting, is to overwrite. Hmm. Write too many pages. If you've got 100 pages down, you can cut to 80 and have a nice tight play. The problem is if you write 80, there's going to be fat on the on the bone. So, yeah, Amanda, before yeah, Ian shares I, his dream. Yes, I totally I totally agree. The and with the writers that I've talked to and and collaborated with to write the few things that I've done, you it's I find myself self-editing and almost like you were saying Ian saying no to myself before I'm even getting it all out so that I'm already trying to decide and self-edit before it's just puked up on the page. And that's what has to happen. You have to get it all out and then sift through it. And you have to sort of shut off that that voice, that self-censored, uh, that mm -hmm. gatekeeper that you have in yourself. Well, um, you know, the aphorism from Hemingway, of course, uh, write drunk, edit sober. Yes. Now, 
if you're not a big <laughs> drinker or if you can't drink for various reasons, you should still bring that Dionysian ecstatic kind of just uh, screw it. We're just going to put it on the page energy to your drafts for sure. Uh, and then, and then edit the heck out of it. Fair to say. Yeah. There was a composer, uh, David Maslanka, who, um, whose works were very much favored in Minnesota, actually. Um, St. Olaf premiered a couple of his symphonies. And in particular, he was notable because he was writing symphonies, which is a, a form in composition that has kind of, it's not died out per se, but it has certainly lapsed in popularity. It used to be the, the mm. great classical composers would compose symphonies. That was the, the sort of work to aspire to. And it's not really that common anymore, but Maslanka would do full symphony uh, composition and he would bring his inspiration from dreams and from visions and all sorts of things. And in addition to being a phenomenal composer, he was also known for having very strange titles to the movements of his pieces uh, within the symphonies because they were pulled from these dreams. And it was things like a man looking at a re his reflection in a pond, not realizing that he himself is the reflection. And that was the, just Ooh. the title of the movement and things like that. Really, really wild, otherworldly stuff. Brilliant compositions, though. Great. What, what was his name? One more time, and then we'll hear David Maslanka. All right. Okay. For those looking to listen to some far out classical music. All right, let's hear this dream. Okay, so uh, slight bit of context. I believe uh, my fiance and I were watching Downton Abbey uh, <laughs> around this time, uh, which I have I have not seen the entirety of yet. Um, uh, I had, didn't get into it when it first was airing, and uh, now I I love it. It's a brilliant character drama. But uh, in addition, I'm a colossal nerd. Uh, and when the pandemic uh, hit, I started running a lot of Dungeons and Dragons campaigns and things like that over over you know Roll Twenty and Zoom and and all these different things. And so uh, that's the space I've been living in in the last couple of years in a lot of ways. So I, I just have to say this is becoming unofficially a tabletop RPG <laughs> podcast. It seems yes. like everyone we have on. Uh, and in any case, yes, Ian, go get to it. Yeah, let's hear it. All right. So uh, these are the notes that I wrote down. I have no idea. Uh, I don't remember a lot of this. Uh, imagery in my head anymore but uh this is this is what what happened so two women one injured and one pregnant by a noble family's eldest son who is not yet married or engaged sets our sets our basic premise here the injured one izzy is down in a basement room on a cot possibly a cave unsure imagery was dark stone not sure what what exactly it was uh, where the pregnant one goes to hide and concoct a plan with the head of the household, very Mrs. Hughes-esque character. At some point, they come in and Izzy is standing facing the wall. And when approached, she slaps the pregnant woman. And in a tussle, we four, somehow I've entered this, this room as well, uh, tumble Narnia style through a door into a tavern or another place, possibly another world, unknown. Fight continues in a tavern. The pregnant woman uh, gets shoved against a wall and blue lines trace up her body, manifesting in a hawk's head above hers as she kicks Izzy. As Izzy is thrown back, similar lines appear. These ones furred and a fox appears for her. These spirits grow larger and larger and larger as they fight, tearing the tavern roof off and going into the streets where we meet Robert and a band of others. He stabs a sword into the hawk, the spirit itself, as it flies off. 
but the woman inside is suspended within the breast of the hawk. The fox is nowhere to be seen. I sit down at a table with mugs with the three of them, his band, and they tell me things about the world I'm missing. The mayor of the town tells them he holds them responsible for the damage and they owe 10 something uh, at this point. There was a currency that existed, I don't know, gold coins or something for each injured person and they have two weeks to pay it. Uh, they inform me that what I saw were agua, uh, spirits of nature that sometimes represent different instincts or concepts. Scarcity is a fox or a coyote. Striving was a hawk or falcon that invest people with power. Do they change people's personalities? Like Izzy in my dream, who was laying ill for days before rising with aggression and a still face? Unsure. Uh, Robert, leader of a company with a manor who trains young adventurers, I guess we've completely crossed into the D&D movie now, uh, <laughs> traveled with a male druid, I guess, who didn't speak much and whose face was painted in horizontal bands of varying width. Uh, another woman who appeared to be sort of a, an outdoors person, maybe Aragorn style ranger uh, from Lord of the Rings. The druid reshaped my face as a disguise when I thought people from the town that the two Agua destroyed saw me and seemed suspicious. There was a whole like concept of four different backstories that have just that, that like went through this dream. And I almost never remember my dreams. It's maybe one a year, maybe one a year uh, at most. And I woke with such a vivid cinematic vision of this scenario in my head. I had to write it down. Oh, my goodness. OK, so I was going to say that you are the first person I've met probably that has as vivid dreams as I do. And I dream almost every night and they are maybe not that long perhaps, but, but that vivid. And I find not a lot of people do dream. And so a long time ago, um, a friend of mine uh, named Ted Hooley, shout out to Ted, and he was like, you know, you should write these. He was, I was telling him about these dreams and how we were so crazy. And he said, you know, you should really write these down. And I find and recommended to actually just very recently, another artist friend of mine who said, you know, I don't dream really at all and very, or very rarely. And I said, well, you know, you should start uh, writing them down in a dream journal. And all of a sudden it becomes this other life that you've lived or other lives and you can, things start happening where you can go back to a dream uh, where you left off and it could have been a dream from two years ago, which happens to me or uh, yeah, it's just fascinating. It's really fascinating. And, you know, you can go down into the rabbit hole of dream symbolism and what you're going through in your life and all those kinds of things. But it's fascinating to hear that as well, because it's, the dreams I do remember tend to be pretty vivid, um, but they also tend to be usually fairly absurd. I have no idea what <laughs> I looked like or who I was in this dream. I don't know if I was a man or a woman or something else, an animal, mm. uh, uh, it's like someone non-binary. I have no idea what or who I was in this dream. I know I was me, but what that means, I have no idea. Mm. Whereas the last time I had one that was that was so vivid, uh, I think it was back when I was living in Germany in like 2012. And I had a dream of a futuristic war fought in the skies, uh, like these giant wing ships, like floating, like, you know, flying through the air and like fighter pilots and all these wild things. And a few of my friends were 
pilots within this dream. And I woke up so concerned for their safety after this dream that I had to like reach out to each of them uh, and just be like, hey, are, is everything okay? Are you doing all right? Because I woke up so unnerved by this dream and by like the, the very real feeling of danger that was present in the dream. It was very, very strange, but just I should perhaps, yeah, take more notes on these. Yeah, you should. Well, they, they do say if you want to dream more, you write your dreams down, have a, mm -hmm. no, a notebook and start recording them. And that's a commonly known hack. That's very funny in your, were you, were you texting your friends out Deutsch or, or in English? I imagine English. They were stateside friends. Oh, okay. uh, so right, I was right, texting right. them in, in English on Facebook Messenger but, and whatnot, just being like, hey, are you okay? Yeah. yeah. Good morning. Did you get shot down in the future war overnight? <laughs> Did I miss a beat, Amanda? Did your fighter go down <laughs> over the Atlantic over last night? <laughs> Right. Who can I call? Uh, no, I'm just like, I want to back up because we know you, Ian, and we like dove right into, you know, hearing all about your dreams, <laughs> which is fantastic. But I want to back up because you lived in Germany and now you live uh, here in Minnesota in the Twin Cities. And I just want, uh, if, if you would, kind of your journey um, from where you grew up and to how you found yourself in Minnesota. Yeah. Um, so I'm from Southern Wisconsin, not too far away. Um, and um, I was very, very fortunate that uh, a family friend approached my parents with regards to hosting an exchange student when I was five from mm. South Africa. And uh, her name is Priya. She stayed with us for about five and a half months. And uh, my oldest brother was present at her wedding uh, done in South Africa years and years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not as in touch with her as, as, uh, perhaps I would like to be, but, um, you know, she's extremely busy and has multiple children and so forth now. And we knew only knew each other when I was five and 10, uh, when we went to South Africa to visit her. Um, but it, it meant that my parents very early on instilled in my brothers and I, a, an awareness of the world, um, so like Priya was a devout Hindu and would come home from school and pray for an hour every day. Um, and so she would do that when we were home from school. So we just knew, Hey, don't disturb Priya when she's doing that. That's her time. Um, and I grew up in a, you know, small Wisconsin city of like, there was Lutheran and there was Catholic. And that was basically the extent of it. Um, and so the exposure to the rest of the world very early and very quickly uh, was really helpful. And it also encouraged my parents to travel with us and to, to encourage us to travel more. So I've been very fortunate to live abroad in a number of places, um, as did my brothers. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, used to be very much uh, that kid with stage fright, you know, sort of nerdy background kid, uh, would, would show off in front of the adults because I wanted to, I wanted them to recognize how smart I was, uh, <laughs> And, um, but eventually, um, wound up in, uh, in an English class and we did a dramatic reading of Antigone and, uh, it was the same English class where I met one of my best friends, um, who, uh, uh, we initially detested each other when we, when we first met because we had an argument about a short story called cold equations, um, we were assigned together to discuss it. And we both thought the other one was, uh, preposterous and egotistical and didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Excuse me. Um, and, 
so we um, we were in this class together and uh, we did the dramatic reading of Antigone and I was reading Creon's speech about the law. You know, the law must be obeyed. And he's his big dramatic failure uh, in the play. And I remember kind of like pounding on my uh, my teacher's like lectern uh, in the front as a kind of a, you know, just a gesture as I was speaking this speech. And I cracked it from corner to corner. Um, and uh, <laughs> so I put this big crack down the middle of the, the top of this lectern. And afterward, uh, my friend came up to me and she said, have you ever thought about auditioning for one of the plays? Uh, and I went, no, because I have stage fright. And she looked at me and she went, that didn't look anything like stage fright. I don't I don't think that's true <laughs> at all. Um, so I auditioned for a show. The stage um, fears you, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, truly, apparently. Um, yeah. What it really came out to is uh, at the time, especially, I was very unconfident in who I was. And so if Ian had to, had to speak in front of people, that was mm. scary. But if Creon was talking in front of people, that's not frightening at all. It's not Ian. Um, and so I quickly got into theater there. Uh, did a year on exchange as my brothers had done before me, uh, lived in Brazil for a year and, um, came back, went to a college here in good old Minnesota, uh, went to St. Olaf, uh, just South of the twin cities here and through a program and a partnership that they had with a school in Germany, I then taught as a guest teacher, uh, English and conversation and theater, uh, and dance actually at a school from 2011 to 2012 uh, in Germany, came back and sort of muddled along. Uh, I remember a, a theater professor of mine uh, having a talk with her and she, uh, she just said, you know, I think you could make something of this. You've, you know, you have, a, you have skills in this, you have a, you have a passion for it. And I said, I'm worried that I don't have the drive to pursue the, the lifestyle um, because we'd had an actor that came and visited and she was talking about, uh, having to move where the work was doing three months here and six months there and, and moving all around doing touring productions and things of the nature of that, of that nature. And, and I said, I'm worried that I wouldn't have, that I wouldn't hack it, that I wouldn't have the drive to do that. Um, and she said, well, that's, that's yours to decide, but I, I think you could do something with this if you pursue it. Um, so, and then I told myself, no, like I, uh, like I, uh, just said that we often do. Uh, and I took a bit of a break from theater after I got back from Germany, Germany. And, um, eventually the bug got to me, uh, and I, and I just went, no, this is, I'm not doing what I need to do. And I, uh, quit my job and went to England to do a master's in ensemble theater in London, uh, came back, uh, landed with a thump. Uh, having been uh, unceremoniously booted out of England um, and uh, landed myself in Minnesota, originally looking for theater work. And then the pandemic hit and everything kind of changed. So um, that's where I am at the moment and uh, have been doing doing some work with Badmouth here since. Uh, for real. And Ian, you're like, we don't have an official company, but, you, you know, you're an official company member of Badmouth, I would say. Uh, we, we're not big on formalities here, but you've been in a number of readings. You're going to be in a reading of my play, my new play, The Animals, later this month. Free, come on down, Waldman Brewery in beautiful St. Paul. Great space. If you want to get more of Ian, uh, he will be there 
reading this play that I'm very excited about. It's going to be a good time. You can also go into the back catalog and hear him in uh, the reading, some of the readings that we've done. And in addition, I have to plug my other podcast, Art of Darkness, artofdarkpod.com. If you go into that back catalog and look for To Have Done With the Judgment of God, a play, an old radio play from Antonin Artaud, the great French, I guess, theoretician of the of the theater, playwright, actor. We did uh, um, a contemporary adaptation of that piece, and Ian figures heavily in that in that online reading that. And it's about thirty minutes long. You, you can't miss it if you look up if you go to artofdarkpod.com and you look for Artaud. Uh, or to have done with the judgment of God. I assume if you go on to Spotify and just look to have done with the judgment of God, you're either going to find, you're probably going to find that podcast and maybe some like hardcore black metal or something. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, please. And, and uh, come on down to the live reading. It's going to be a good time. And Ian is super involved with the, uh, with the theater. We always go back to the well that is Ian Hathaway. So we're really glad to know you, Ian, and to, and to have you on board. Are, do you have a website? Are you online? uh, Uh, I don't have a website at the moment, actually. It's one of those things that I uh, had planned to get sorted out in the UK. One of the things that you do as you're working as an actor is you get onto like spotlight, for example, and that kind of serves as your call sheet for theaters in the, the UK area. And then, uh, I hadn't really considered theater work in the U.S. or even film and, and voice stuff until after I really got back. And so it's things with yeah. the pandemic and how that goes. But uh, that mm-hmm. that is that's uh, it's where we're where we're at at the moment. So no no website at the moment. But I'm right. looking forward to continuing to to read with Badmouth. It's been a joy to explore well, the variety of plays that we've we've put up. Read and, and eventually we're heading to more and more toward full productions. Like I think we're probably going to, well, we, we have our first production coming up. We're going to be doing One Good Marriage at Phoenix Theater in May of this year. And I think at this rate, we're probably going to produce one of my plays, one of Mari's plays. My play Moderation, I think is just dying for a production. It's had five readings it's we've talked about we, we've shared it with a lot of people already it's like well okay it's meant to be produced so who mm-hmm. knows what'll come of it amanda uh well you can catch ian and kevin's new play the animals uh at waldman brewery in saint paul and it's going to be at 7 p.m on monday march 27th so come on out have a tasty beer or other beverage and some great german food the ambiance is absolutely amazing and uh it's gonna be a great play with obviously a great actor so get out and i i want to talk about voiceover work uh a little bit more ian because i know you're heavy into that and you do have the dulcet chocolatey tones uh and people always comment on that but first and i don't want to really turn this into a production meeting that's not really what (laughs) mouthing off is but we are doing (laughs) we're doing our you know the live podcast uh of part one F Scott Fitzgerald for art of darkness later this year. And do you know the short story winter dreams? Uh, Ian, I don't think I'm familiar. It's, it's my favorite Fitzgerald short story. It's set in Minnesota largely. It kind of has all of the Fitzgerald uh, kind of like the, the spirit of his writing is just fully realized in this short story. It's a beautiful story about a, a young man who comes from a, like a lower middle class background, who's a caddy, uh, who 
uh, falls in love with a, like a society girl. And then it's about what happens when he makes himself later in life and then realizes what's happened to her. It's sort of about the dreams of your youth being frozen and you're never able to go back. Yeah. So there might, we're going to do a reading, a theatrical like presentation of that short story. So who knows, maybe there's a chance you, you could probably join us for that. Yeah. If you're that available. Sounds brilliant. Uh, oh, and it's gonna and be like fun. you said, that sounds classic Fitzgerald, um, mm. the, the mm -hmm. disillusionment and our dreams of mm. youth and realizing how distant they are when we, when we come to look at them later in life, that's classic quintessential Fitzgerald. Ugh. Yeah. I I love this short story. So can, will you indulge me? Can I read like the first para or two of this short story? Certainly. Okay, Absolutely. very good. I'm really excited. Hang on. I got my got to get my uh Chrome browser up. I'm, too many windows. Listen to this. I'll read the I'll read the first three paras. Some of the caddies were poor as sin and lived in one-room houses with a neurasthenic cow in the front yard. But Dexter Green's father owned the second best grocery store in Black Bear. The best one was the hub patronized by the wealthy people from Sherry Island. And Dexter caddied only for pocket money. In the fall, when the days became crisp and gray and the long Minnesota winter shut down like the white lid of a box, Dexter's skis moved over the snow that hid the fairways of the golf course. At these times, the country gave him a feeling of profound melancholy. It offended him that the lynx should lie in enforced foulness haunted by ragged sparrows for the long season. It was dreary, too that on the tees where the gay colors fluttered in summer, there were now only the desolate sandboxes, knee-deep in crusted ice. When he crossed the hills, the wind blew cold as misery, and if the sun was out, he tramped with his eyes squinted up against the hard, dimensionless glare. In April, the winter ceased abruptly. The snow ran down into Black Bear Lake, scarcely tarrying for the early golfers to brave the season with red and black balls. Without elation, without an, an interval of moist glory, the cold was gone. Ah, anyway, so it's gonna that's gonna be a fun one. And you hear got to hear Just, Ian Ian's voice reading this, and uh, we'll we'll see wait. if we can make it happen. Can't you know? Yeah, I don't know what your schedule looks like, Ian. But oh, and and of course, Black Bear there is White Bear Lake, and yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Of course, absolutely. Well, apart from a wedding in November, most of my schedule is fairly free. So um, <laughs> I look forward to uh, to partaking in that. No, right. I, speaking of voiceover, a friend once suggested that I should simply have a podcast that was just, you know, three minutes that was uh, just good night, ladies. And it was just me saying good night to whoever wanted to listen to it before they went to bed. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that, that's just ASMR. ASMR. Yeah, literally. You know, it's mm -hmm. just a little, I'll just read you a quiet bedtime story before you go to sleep. Absolutely. Um, and you can buy buy them and you can make them personalized. So you can tell each person, you know, good yeah. night. And I hope you have sweet dreams of this. And may your day tomorrow look like this. And good night. Well, I need to get my website set up stat because that would be a fabulous side hustle for me here. Yes, Patreon. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> For real, that's that's fun. Excellent. What, are you familiar? Are, are both of you familiar with the uh, the British comedy series Black Books? You know Black Books. I'm not actually. Oh, it, oh, it's so good. It's like a classic from the from the '90s. And uh, oh gosh, the um, the uh, the lead. His name escapes me, but he does like Dylan Moran uh, is is mm. the lead, and he's so funny. And it's this. He's a curmudgeonly Irish 
used bookstore keeper who's always drinking and smoking and he has his next door neighbor gal pal and it's all platonic and then he has his kind of his manservant who moves in this guy named manny I, it's it sounds super formulaic but it's extraordinarily funny and there's one episode where the gal pal uh some old boyfriend comes around and he has these this the most incredible voice and <laughs> and she puts herself to bed at night he reads the shipping news on the radio <laughs> so, <laughs> so she lies there and listens to him talking about the ship the, the ships coming in and out of port and it it gets her rather uh flustered well <laughs> and there is that old adage you know where oh gosh that actor is so good they you know i'd watch them read the phone book ian i'd listen to you read the phone book <laughs> less i that does mean a lot to me um it, long ago, when I first started doing theater, I thought that I had a terrible voice, in particular for singing. Uh, and so I started off singing comedy songs. I memorized songs by Tom Lehrer and other similar singers because I figured uh, Tom Waits, Tom Lehrer, mm. because I figured it doesn't matter if you don't have uh, a beautiful voice when you're singing songs like that. Um, and that was part of what got me into singing and music in general was you know, parody and satire songs uh, like Poisoning Pigeons in the Park and, and things like that by Tom yes. Lehrer. So uh, I've performed actually a few of Tom Lehrer's songs in talent shows, variety shows, and also at the start of a spoof production called Eddie, which is a parody of Oedipus Rex uh, with a happy ending. Um, yeah, it's it's real bad. It's real bad, <laughs> but it was extremely funny to put on a high school stage and listen to the complaints roll in uh, about what, the production that we did in our small Wisconsin city. Oh my goodness, that is amazing. Ugh. But in, what do you do in voiceover? I know that you you've done audiobooks and things of that nature. Is that right? Uh, Primarily, I've done corporate uh, voiceover, honestly, a lot of e-learnings and educational things. Um, I've taught people about tax law and credit card uh, 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 regulations. Um, and so uh, I've definitely done a lot of the more corporate style of things. I also did some green light audio for a company that produces video games that I can't name. Um, and, uh, they needed a German speaker for a project they were developing. I'll be honest. I don't even know what the project was. Uh, I was never told, uh, and I had to sign an NDA about, uh, any details I had anyway. Um, but honestly, they never gave me any details that I could reveal, but they needed a German speaker to do both English and German audio. And it was just green light stuff. So none of it made it into the actual game. They got a, a voice actor out of LA to do the real stuff and, um, but so I've, I've mostly done um, kind of a minor projects like that, a little bit of a little bit of radio and a little bit of educational stuff here and there. Yeah, I've I've done uh, the same, a little bit of corporate. Um, and then I work with a company, shout out to Graphic Audio LLC, uh, Movie in Your Mind. And what they do is they produce audiobooks that aren't read by one person. They adapt them into a uh, a script and they cast actors for each of the parts and then they have uh, underscoring of music and sound effects so if it's a western there's horses and spitting and all that good stuff yes i mean you can do it kevin you got it clap, clap, um, clap, clap, clap. i'm a foley artist now clap clap yes. clap, clap, clap. 
And it's absolutely <laughs> amazing. Um, I love voice acting because you can run the gambit of, you know, please place your finger on the scale. Wait for the green light. Please click the, you know, you can go from that sort of thing to just, you know, uh, high British comedy or, you know, I yeah, think there's this. Um, can you, there's can this you amazing- channel? Can you channel the horse that you did for It's All Red, like a metaphor or something, on demand? Oh, darling, how could you ever ask me to do that? It is such a hard (laughs) time for myself. I need something to go on like this. Something like that. (laughs) Wonderful. You were saying. You were saying. um, Yeah, you could go from that and and do these. um, Oh, gosh, I think I I read uh, an alien uh, a f- there's a book out, a science fiction book out there about an alien football league, interplanetary kind of football, get like whatever. And it's <laughs> like super serious and, uh, or like you have the creature voices and it's so fun to just, um, pl- you know, play the whole gambit of stuff, it, you know, it sounds that you to wouldn't me in like real you, life. You've got to make an introduction. I mean, do they... Yeah, you got to make an introduction for sure. Amanda. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's well, send them send them a link to this episode at badmouthtc.com for sure and say, "Hey, we're giving you shout-outs here and there's this great actor who does impressions." I know a guy. Yes. I know a guy. On I demand guy. he does impressions. Incredible. Hey, you know, introductions are what it's all made of. It's how I ended up here after all. Kevin, I was introduced to you by Abby, who I ended up working with by complete happenstance. I landed in London and a swing dancer that I knew said, hey, there was a post. Someone was looking for an actor who can swing dance. And I went, hey, it's me. And I got there and the part was for a guy, a swing dancer who had just moved to London and didn't know where anything was. And I went, I just moved to London and I don't know where anything is. (laughs) I don't have to act. I just am. Exactly. So it's yes. it's crazy how those coincidental meetings can really carry you forward. Um, but uh, good fortune, uh, you know, mm. it's one of those things. If you work well with people, uh, that's that's really the, the biggest part of it. You know, don't be a jerk. Show up, do your work and like make a good impression, make a connection. Um, nobody likes the actors who think that they're, you know, the hottest stuff since Olivier or something. Ugh, no, thanks. <laughs> This is true of any career. Uh, well, most careers. Every job should lead to the next job, right? Mm-hmm. That's how it exactly. Should be. And if it and if it isn't, you got to ask. You got to ask yourself why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's or, a really good point. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and yeah. I think, mm-hmm. and I, I think too that it's so important for. I don't care what age you are at, what stage you are at in your career, but as an artist you have to stay curious and and like look and just watch and observe the world because as soon as you think you know you know everything or you've got it figured out and you've got this recipe for you know every character you do in every play or every song you sing is going to be it's just gets stale and it gets boring and it gets old not only for yourself but for the audience so i find these you know th- thankfully they're very rare but you know once in a while you meet the the diva who knows it all and it's kind of like, oh, yes, your instrument is just beautiful, but there's no hunger. There's no fire under there, no passion, no curiosity. And it's kind of, yeah, stale. Go ahead. I would love to, kind of bouncing off of that, there was a 
a playwright who we worked extensively with in my MA in, in London, a fellow by the name of Howard Barker, um, English playwright, tremendous, tremendous talent as a, as a playwright. But for, for actors who potentially have fallen into that rut of like, these are the contemporary shows I do, these are the classical shows I do, and they have those habits, uh, or we, I should say, have those habits because I'm absolutely one of those actors. To then encounter Barker's work requires so much of us as actors. Um, we spoke with uh, Jane Burtish, a phenomenal British actor who had, uh, was a part of uh, Howard's uh, company, part of uh, Barker's company. And uh, she said, yes, when I first read one of Howard's plays, I despair, uh, <laughs> which was one of the best lines because I felt exactly the same way. I read this play and I read it quietly to myself, which was my first mistake. And I was baffled by it completely and utterly baffled by it. It was called Gertrude or the cry. And it was a retelling mm -hmm. of the story of Hamlet, but with Gertrude as the central focus. Um, and uh, Howard Barker does this frequently where a, a minor character in a painting or a story becomes the central focus and the most important linchpin of the, the production. Um, but his work requires so much of us because there's no artifice or subterfuge within the lines. And so these people are speaking out, not just their inner thoughts. It's not stream of consciousness or something like that, but it's they're speaking their inner reality and truth out in their dialogue. And that's very uncomfortable for us as people to first mm. encounter until we dig into who those people are. And it takes a lot of work to approach those productions and get anything that's not shallow. Um, so it, it was really tremendous. I had the, the privilege to meet him and, and speak with him briefly about, about some of his productions. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a, a wonderful kick in the pants to those of us who thought we had a handle on some of this stuff. And then, you know, clearly got had we had nothing <laughs> right we just got our butts kicked by some amazing other artist who who's like here try this on for size and you're like oh okay um, exactly and I, I i was trained in uh the suzuki method uh by robin hunt and stephen pearson at the university of south carolina uh who studied for 12 years with suzuki and ann bogart was part of their uh cohort uh with them and I appreciate his work so much because it it really keeps you the, all the kata or the um, uh, core uh, core what do you call them theater practices or um, things that you do every day to kind of remind yourself how to stay present always and not fall back into oh I know how to do this fight I know how to do this but in order to breathe in the present what's different the the light may be glinting off your glasses differently and how does that affect who I am you know right now and how I say this line and to stay in this active observance of what's happening rather than Oh, it's a Sunday matinee, but to be not be back on your heels, but be forward on the balls of your feet and and grounded. There was a big shout out to Gabriel Gowan, uh, who headed uh, my my master's program in, in London. Um, phenomenal actor as well. But he talked about this same kind of thing being present in the actual moment, the reality of whatever you're talking about. And I mean, our job as actors is to tell the truth, like whatever we're saying on stage or in a production or on film should be true for who we are at that time. And, but 
being active instead of passive. Uh, he talked about a production of this Scottish play, I think it was, where there was a fly that kept buzzing around in front of him and he mm-hmm. ignored it. And he said, I wish so much. What would have happened? How beautiful would it have been if I just caught the fly and, you know, just react, like actively interact with the world that is happening right now in the present as it happens. Don't just passively recite your lines like some sort of automaton that holds no interest. Right. Well, this is the, this is the great turn in acting for film that occurred with Brando and, uh, who we covered on my other podcast, Start of Darkness. And I think about Brando a lot. If you want an education in how film acting, and he, and of course, this was also theater acting that he changed. It started in the theater. But the first film he made uh, after the big breakout of uh, Streetcar was not Streetcar. It was a film, I think it was called The Men. Uh, and it was about... Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a 1950 American drama film set mostly in a paraplegic ward of a VA hospital. Mm-hmm. And it stars Brando as an ex-GI named Ken, who has a war wound. So it, it's got a little bit of a quality of like, like a PSA. Like we're going to, you know, we're going to gather the women together and say, hey, now your your boys have come home, your men have come home, and they may not be able to do what they used to do let's say uh they 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 can't read the shipping report if you follow me uh and the point i'm making is that on film that that film is so fascinating to watch because brando acts in the new style that is eventually going to take over hollywood and theater and every single thing that we think about in terms of acting now of course there's some variation right not everybody acts like brando but there are these scenes where and the film is super uneven because when brando's on screen he's doing his brando thing very loose very present and all of the other actors are acting in the old style Mm. uh so it's super bizarre. Uh, I'd be like, I don't even know what a good metaphor would be. It'd be like throwing cherry tomatoes into your cereal. It, does, it doesn't work. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, Ian. I was going to say, uh, Mark Rylance, uh, the, the fabulous actor, talks a lot about how like Shakespeare should be read closer to rap than to these sort of like elaborate, high-browed pronunciations, like looking back at Olivier productions and things of that nature, it should be fluid and alive and vibrant, and it should have that rhythmic quality to it. And uh, it's so interesting to see that clash with the sort of elitist, purist, like purist well, the, mentality the way they that were some trained, people approach Shakespeare. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they would train these, these film actors all had that kind of like, uh, what do they call it? That like the mid-Atlantic accent, the Atlantic mm-hmm. accent. They're supposed to be like, I think in California. I, I don't even know. In any case. Yeah. Ian, I feel like as we wind down this episode of Mouthing Off, a theater arts and culture podcast online at badmouthtc.com and also on old timey radio. Ian, can I get a read? Can you say... Frogtown Radio, 94.1 FM. Frogtown Radio, 94.1 FM. Uh, Easy. We got it. We got it on the first (laughs) try. Tremendous. Also on Frogtown Radio, I know you you wanted to talk about Shakespeare. So we already arrived there. It comes up naturally. Uh, where let me let me start with a question. Where do you stand on the Oxfordian v Stratfordian debate? Do you there's no debate for you? It's it's 
pointless. Absolute <laughs> tripe. Absolute nonsense. Um, every time somebody approaches me with the the conspiracy theories of Shakespeare wasn't one man and all these different things, I am reminded of the the myriad flaws and screw ups in so many of his plays. Um, we set sail from Milan. Milan is landlocked. You can't set sail from Milan. He didn't know his geography. He didn't know anything about nature. He he makes so many mistakes throughout his plays that you can clearly see this is a man writing to a deadline. Uh, you know, mm. he was on commission. He had to churn out works in order to make a check. And so he makes all these mistakes, you know, um, and uh, I think it's Antigonus getting eaten by the bear in The Winter's Tale. You, I mean, mm. although there's the, oh, there's a bear baiting arena and it's close by and it's a funny joke. It also makes no sense uh, from a story, from a narrative perspective for Antigonus to get eaten by a bear. It's completely irrelevant to everything else in the production. And you can see in that a man that goes, this guy has to die because he knows the secret. And if he's alive, the whole second act of the play, like the whole second half of the play falls apart. So he's got to go, but he has to go in a way that gives some kind of information, a clue to the farmer and his kid who find the baby, I, whatever. I'll have a bear eat him. It doesn't make sense, but who cares? It'll be a funny joke. It'll be a little jab uh -huh. at the bear baiting arena. Yep. Like there's all these places where clearly this is a guy with a job, a brilliant guy to be sure, but he's still a guy just making screw ups and you see them all throughout the plays and not all of his plays are good. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to get on that, that stand and say, I think some of Shakespeare's plays are bad plays. The language in them is beautiful, but the play itself just isn't good. Um, any of the big ones, any of the big ones aren't good because we know the, the big ones. Oh, you don't think Taming of the Shrew is good? I don't think Taming of the Shrew is a good play. I don't think there's any way to make that a good play. I think that Measure for Measure uh, is a problem play. Uh, there's there's very few ways to make that work. Uh, Titus Andronicus, although I love aspects of it, is it's rough from a narrative perspective. It's rough. Um, there's there's a number of them, and even if you look at his earlier plays as well, like this is a guy clearly just playing to the crowd. Comedy of Errors is very lowbrow. It's very, very uncomplicated. There is nothing particularly complex happening in Comedy of Errors. You can read deeper into it. And he still wrote interesting ideas into, you know, some of the monologues and narratives. But as a whole, as a structure, Comedy of Errors is basically a slapstick, slapstick rom-com, you know, at best is, is what we're really coming at it with. And you heard it here. Yeah, you heard it here first on Mouthing Off. Ian Hathaway is a staunch Stratfordian. He does not think Edward de Vere was Shakespeare. He does not think Shakespeare was a coalition of writers. Get out Ian of here with is... that nonsense. <laughs> Absolutely. Is, yeah, Ian is a trained actor. He's, I guess we'd call you a trad. You're an orthodox Shakespeare. You, 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 okay. All right. Good to know. Yeah. And yet I'm also a big proponent for cutting Shakespeare. Don't give me a three and a half hour Romeo and Juliet production because 
that's not the way we view theater now is not the way it was viewed then. And it's not what it was written for. The best Romeo and Juliet production I've ever been uh, a part of. Shout out to Alex Pearson, the director in London uh, at the original Rose Playhouse. So this is the actual Rose Theater, uh, which was uncovered underneath an office building in London. Um, phenomenal little space. They've they've unearthed the theater itself and really, really fascinating to just be there where Shakespeare himself walked the boards. Our production or their production, I should say, I was a, a movement uh, a consultant for it and, and uh, a director for dancing there um, uh, for, for this production, but 90 minutes straight through it was right. taut, it was tense, it was funny, it was violent, it was incredible. Just like this episode of Mouthing Off, we are at time. The great Ian Hathaway, Amanda Forstrom, I'm Kevin Couchman. Ian, you're welcome back anytime. We'll have a lot to talk about. You're going to be in the Animals at Waldman Brewery later this month, March 2023. Check it out, badmouthtc.com. 